Section 40 of the South American Republics, Volume 1, by Thomas Cleland Dawson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Piotr Nater. Part 4. Brazil. Chapter 17. Pedro II. The so-called liberals went into power on the declaration of the emperor's majority, and proved to be more tyrannical and centralizing than the conservatives whom they had replaced. Provincial governments were dismissed wholesale solely for factional advantage. The Chamber of Deputies was dissolved and a new one elected in the fall of 1840, and in the choice of deputies the Andradas interfered, securing an overwhelming liberal majority. In reality, however, the Andradas had not won the confidence of the ruling coteries, nor of the boy emperor. When they quarrelled with Aureliano, one of their colleagues, the matter was submitted to Pedro, who was then only fifteen and a half years old. His decision was against the Andradas. They resigned, and from that moment, until his mental powers began to fail, Pedro II was the supreme authority in the state. He governed parliamentarily, as far as he deemed it possible, left most matters to his cabinets, kept out of view, and was careful to ascertain public opinion. Nonetheless, he was the final arbiter in matters of the first importance. In the politics of the next fifty years, he was incomparably the most potent Brazilian. Happily for his country, he resembled his mother rather than his father. Studious and laborious, books were his great occupation. He was an indefatigable and omnivorous reader, and though especially fond of history and sociology, few subjects and few literatures escaped him. No fact ever failed to interest him, but his mind was too discursive and his studies too widespread and too superficial to give him a store of sound and well-digested knowledge. Morally, he was a complete contrast to his dissipated father. He was a monarch of the conscientious nineteenth-century type. He, as a little boy, had been obedient to the priests and ladies to whom his rearing had been entrusted, but they retained no great influence over him. Though thoroughly respectful toward religion, he was not especially devout, and his political ideas were gathered rather from his own reading than from direct teaching. As a father and husband he was good and kind, and conscientiously devoted all his energies to the performance of his duties, public and private. His first act on assuming power was to forbid the people of his household to ask any favors of him in regard to public affairs. His manners were democratic. Though tall and handsome, he cared little for his personal appearance. His clothing was ill-fitting and ill-cared for. He drove about in rickety old carriage, with absurd-looking horses. He kept no court properly so-called. He would gobble through his state dinners in a hurry to get back to his books. He would call cabinet meetings at inconvenient hours of the night, if an idea struck him. Though his subjects loved and trusted him, the general tendency was rather to laugh at his peculiarities. It could hardly be said that people personally stood much in awe of him. At the same time, when action was to be taken in a crisis, he could be as arbitrary as any czar. He took no pride in imposing his will over that of others, and his manners and methods were always mild and gentle. Some believe that he deliberately assumed careless, democratic ways, thinking them best adapted to maintaining himself in power, and it is certain that he showed little anxiety about his position and seemed to value it slightly. 
Intellectually restless though he was, his judgment was sound enough to enable him soon to foresee that the inevitable tendency was toward a republic, and in the latter part of his life he often said that he was the best republican in the empire, and that his main function was to prepare the way for it. At bottom he was not a man of strong passions or intense will, but was rather a mild-mannered and philosophic opportunist, whose greatest merit was that he loved peace, and whose greatest achievement was that Brazil remained internally quiet during his long reign. With the fall of the Andradas, the Conservative Party returned to power, and a reactionary parliamentary government, with the Emperor as a sort of regulating and controlling Deus Ex Machina, was definitely installed. Great things were hoped for from the new regime, and loyalty to the young Emperor was enthusiastic, sincere, and universal. However, the internal disturbances were too serious to be calmed in a day. The revolution in Maranhão, which had been bequeathed by the regency, was formidable. In pacifying it, a general named Luis Lima e Silva first came to the front, and was named Baron of Caxias for his services. This officer was less than forty years of age, and came of a family of soldiers, one of whom had been the military member of the first regency. He had served in all the wars and most of the insurrections since 1822, and had always shown solid, though not especially brilliant qualities. He was a good manager of men, and a steady, pertinacious, and shrewd negotiator. His detractors accuse him of unscrupulous bribery, and it is certain that he was extraordinarily successful in sowing discord among his opponents. He obeyed the orders of his superiors, and was faithful to the emperor. Probably the limitations of his character were as important as his affirmative abilities in enabling him to grow into the great military consolidator of the distracted empire. His work in the first years of the forties was hardly inferior in importance to that of the emperor himself. The return to power of the conservatives in 1841 caused great dissatisfaction among the displaced liberals and the advocates of provincial autonomy. The conservatives seemed to have captured the young emperor, and the liberals began to insist on the application to Brazil of the English maxim, quote, the king reigns but does not govern, end quote. In 1842, a revolution broke out in Sorocaba, the home of Padre Feijo, in the state of São Paulo. The trouble was aggravated by the harsh measures taken by the conservative governor to suppress it, and soon spread to various points in the provinces and thence to Minas Gerais. The revolutionists announced that their objects were to free the emperor from the coercion of the conservative oligarchy, to maintain the autonomy of the provinces, and to preserve the constitution, whose guarantees were being rendered nugatory. Fighting only lasted two months, but there were fifteen important fights in Minas and five in São Paulo. The government forces under Caxias were completely victorious, and in the final and decisive battle of Santa Luisa, he overwhelmed and dispersed three thousand men and captured all the principal leaders. The emperor and Caxias adopted a magnanimous and conciliatory policy toward the defeated rebels, though the conservative ministers persisted in advocating harsh measures. Only Rio Grande do Sul remained under arms, and even there the rebels were not averse to accepting the emperor's authority. 
As soon as Cassius had finished the pacification of Minas, he was ordered south. The campaign began by his winning two important victories, and he followed them up by promises of amnesty, which detached some of the most formidable rebel chiefs. Finally, in the spring of 1845, Rio Grande returned to the Brazilian Union on the concession of a full and complete amnesty. That province has ever since enjoyed a larger measure of autonomy than any other part of Brazil. By the beginning of 1844, the disintegrating effects of a long continuance in power showed itself among the conservatives. The cabinet came to an issue with an emperor over a question of an appointment, and he called the liberals to power. The new government was ready to carry out the emperor's policy of full and free amnesty and pacification by concession. With the collapse of the revolution in Rio Grande, the central government seemed at length to have passed all danger. The demands for a juster interpretation of the Acto Adicional and for a larger measure of autonomy to the provinces and municipalities died out altogether, or took a peaceful form. The liberals in power turned out to be as conservative as the conservatives themselves, and the work of consolidation and centralization proceeded uninterruptedly. The liberal ministry was, however, in a false situation. The very name they bore was an implied promise to effect reforms. Their majority soon split up into warring factions. Congress spent the session of 1848 in quarrelsome debates. The fall of Louis Philippe had diffused a spirit of revolution in the air. The municipal elections were accompanied by riots, and the ministry itself deliberately encouraged a renewal of the anti-Portuguese agitation. The emperor thought himself obliged to intervene and appointed a conservative cabinet. In Pernambuco, the new conservative governor displaced the liberal officials who had been holding office for the last three years. The latter were anti-Rio and anti-Portuguese, and they and their partisans started an insurrection known as that of the Praeiros. It quickly assumed a formidable character, and as many as 2,000 revolutionists took part in a single battle, but after three months of fighting they were completely defeated. Little difficulty was experienced in restoring public order. The movement had been rather a partisan uprising than a general popular revolution. This was the last attempt for more than 40 years to establish a federal system. The necessities of the stormy period from 1827 to 1848 had led, step by step, to a form of government which was centralized and yet not absolute. The imperial system had been the result of a natural growth. When the fabric reached stability, the professional ruling classes feared to disturb it, and the people were too inert and indifferent to afford support to agitators and reformers. Agriculture, commerce, and industry advanced only slowly during the first eight years of Pedro's rule. The country was getting ready for the activity which followed. Great Britain's efforts to induce the Brazilian government to carry out its treaty obligations for the suppression of the slave trade had been futile. In 1845, the British Parliament passed the Aberdeen Bill, which authorized British men-of-war to capture slaves even in territorial waters. This measure was especially directed at Brazil, whose coast had become practically the sole market for the horrible traffic. 
the bill did not immediately effect its purpose, and the slavers made the most of the opportunity. In 1848, over 60,000 Negroes were imported into Brazil. Immigration from Europe had practically ceased with the expulsion of Pedro I and the anti-foreign demonstrations of the Regency, but it now slowly began again. In 1843, Don Pedro, being then not quite 18 years old, was married by proxy to Teresina Cristina, daughter of Francis, King of Naples. There is a tradition that the emperor turned his back when he saw his bride's face. Nevertheless, he made her a good husband. Their two boys died in infancy, but in 1846 Isabel was born, who still survives and lives in Paris with her husband, a grandson of Louis-Philippe, and with her three sons, the eldest of whom is named for his grandfather and was 27 years old in 1902. End of section 40